Hi everyone, welcome to the Budget Writing Hour, and this is Rachel Cruz. I am excited to welcome Marianne Chan to the show. She is the author of All Heathens, and Marianne grew up in Stuttgart, Germany, and Lansing, Michigan. She holds degrees from Michigan State University and the University of Nevada, Las Vegas. Her poems have appeared in Michigan Quarterly Review, Cincinnati Review, Ninth Letter, West Branch, The Rumpus, and elsewhere. Currently, she's pursuing a PhD in creative writing and literature at the University of Cincinnati, where she is a Yates Fellow. Marianne, welcome to the show. Hi, thanks for having me. Would you like to start us off with a poem from your book, All Heathens? Yeah, absolutely. Um, okay, so I will read uh, When the Man at the Party Said He Wanted to Own a Filipino. I should have said that all I've ever wanted was to own a 50-year-old white man is what he was, but I didn't say that because it wasn't true. Instead, I said nothing, but I almost said amicably, yes, our bodies are banging, aren't they? Our skin is leather upholstery beneath the savage sun. Our eyes are fruits fallen from the highest trees, the bottoms of our unshod feet the color of amethyst. I almost said we will parade around your living room in a linen cloth and feed you turtle eggs and corneolus meat a porcelain dish. I almost said, I'll be your Filipino, you be my Viking. We'll ride in a boat together. I'll wear your horny helmet. But I said nothing. At the party, I wanted to be liked, which is my tragic flaw. I always find myself on the street smiling at people who look to be neo-Nazis. I call it a safety smile. Rarely do they smile back, but I would hug them if they needed it, if I think it would spare I used to wonder if this amenability was inherited. Raja Humabun, a Filipino king in the 1500s, did not resist Magellan's missionary agenda. Humabun greeted Magellan and his Christian lord with friendship, maybe out of genuine religious feeling, or maybe servitude and friendship are a type of fire retardant, protection from the torches that burned down the villages of the chiefs who refused to kneel. Of course, there were some who refused to kneel, and maybe this is also something along with everything else, all the possible variations. And it doesn't take me long to realize the flaws in this notion of an inherited friendliness. When I was 13 or 14, the white husband of my parents' friend showed me pictures of his Filipino wife in different bikinis, the ones she sent him in letters before he hopped on a plane to the Philippines to marry her. He had a 5 by 7 album full of these photographs, these early flirtations. It made him nostalgic to sift through them. What's good about my wife, he said, is that she's easy on the eyes. A tuft of his chest hair appeared from the collar in his shirt, and the soul inside me nearly choked on its own regurgitations. Before I could ask if he sent her pictures of himself, I heard his wife's bright cackle from the other room, like the firing of artillery from a distant ship. I noted that she was not easy on the ears, that she was not easy at all. I realize now that this story was never about us being owned, because we will always own ourselves. This story is about the way the world believes that it owns us, holding its album of pictures in its wishful hands. And we are not amenable as much as we are insidious. We are the Corneolis, who, after being eaten alive by a whale, enter the whale's body and take small, tender bites Thank you so much for reading that. 
I was reading this poem um, during class and my students were doing a writing exercise and I put the book down and I was like, oh shit. And they all looked up at me. <laughs> I was like, I'm just reading a really great poem. And, oh, that's um, <laughs> so nice. Thank you. Yeah, I'm really glad that you're on the show. And um, for folks who are listening out there, it is March 19th, 2020, and we are in the middle of the coronavirus crisis. And, um, you know, just as part of the podcast, me and the other podcast hosts are really interested in amplifying and supporting voices of color, queer and trans voices, um, writers who are disabled. And so we are hoping to record episodes with these writers and um, for them to talk about their books. And so I'm, I'm glad that you're on the show today, Marianne. And, um, and if folks out there are interested in being on the show or have suggestions, definitely you can find us on Twitter or Instagram at the Blood Jet Writing Hour. And you can send us a direct message there. Marianne, I really appreciated that you read that poem. And while I was reading All Heathens, I was really struck by the way in which you weave in the colonial history of the Philippines with a real, uh, the speaker's real and present life. And I was really, I really appreciated the way in which it didn't feel like the colonial past was left in the past. It felt very much part of the present and the future. And I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about that. You know, I, when I started working on this manuscript, I wasn't really, you know, thinking, I don't think that this happens, for, I think this happens for a lot of poets, but um, I wasn't really writing poems that were going to be a part of a book. You know, I was I was sort of just writing poems because, because I felt like the poem needed to exist and because I, I wanted to write that, that particular poem. And, um, few years ago when I started, when, when I sort of started writing this, um, this book focused on, you know, Philippine colonial history. And the first poem that I wrote was Elegy for Your Master, which mm-hmm. is um, the third poem in the collection. And it's written from the perspective of Enrique of Malacca, Magellan's slave. And I wanted to write a series of poems from that perspective. But then I realized that I kind of had a hard time building the momentum and keeping up the energy for that series, I think partly because there's really not that much information about Enrique, but I really love Enrique as sort of like a character in, in Magellan's voyage because he was enslaved by Magellan when he was a teenager, and he, he there's, there's some theories that say that he may have been the first person to circumnavigate the world mm-hmm. because he was brought from um, the Malaccas to Portugal and then from Seville, they, they went. They took a westward route to the Spice Islands, and then he, he he set himself free in the Philippines. And if he had made it back to the Malaccas, then he would have been the first person to circumnavigate the world. And I just mm. love the idea of that. Right. Um, and so I wanted to keep writing poems about him, but then I had to kind of expand and think about the project as, as sort of a poem more about my life and my family and and Magellan, because that that was the way that the that was just the way that I was writing them. Like I, I was really focusing more on like my family's experiences. Um, and I started to see some sort of connections between um, my family's experience and their immigration story with Tony Okikafeta and mm-hmm. their voyage and Magellan's voyage um, around the world. Right. And so, um, so to answer your question about sort of how I've, I guess it's your question more about why I, I did that or, or how 
how I did that or I guess it's more about like those points of because as I read your collection I, I was like yeah this is so obvious right like it's um the way that time is constructed in these poems is like the way I experience colonialism right on a daily basis right it makes yeah. sense and I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit about those moments of those touchstones say in your family's life and then you know what Pigafetta is writing about you know as one of the historians with Magellan I, I think that when it comes to my experience with my family there are ways in which colonization continues to impact us and I, I started noticing this as a kid right like when you're mm-hmm. growing up with uh, Filipino immigrants one thing for example that you'll notice is like um your mom might respond, or your mom and dad might react to, like, a light-skinned Filipino as, as beautiful, mm-hmm. right? It, or you, they might say, you know, don't go, don't go out in the sun or don't go tanning because you shouldn't, you're going you're gonna to have darker skin and that's ugly. And I feel like that's a way in which I, as a child, saw, you know, colonialism continuing to impact my family. And there's a poem called uh, A Country of Beautiful Women in All Heathens mm-hmm. that is sort of focused on that. It's focused on sort of the ways that ways in which Filipinos view skin color. And then, of course, like we see the impact in the Philippines today, um, the Philippine economy. There, there's so many, there's so much poverty in the Philippines. And a lot of that is, is impacted by, you know, centuries of colonization, American and Spanish colonization. And it's something that I have been, you know, paying attention to and it's something that I am seeing I guess like after reading Pigafetta's text and learning a little bit more about Magellan's voyage I started to sort of just see like the beginnings of that mm-hmm. and the beginnings of how like the colonizer viewed us and how they viewed us as, as less than human and how people continue to view us that way today like when when the man at the party um said he wanted to own a Filipino mm-hmm. you know, it was actually about a uh, an incident that I had when I, I was I was at dinner with some co- some co-workers and one of my co-workers husbands said you know I I live and I've spent a lot of time in the Middle East and um, I I see in the Middle East that there are so many people who have their own Filipinos and I've always wanted to own my own Filipino mm. and he said that to me at a dinner and everybody was quiet and nobody said anything and I didn't say anything and I was really frustrated afterwards that I didn't say anything to him about like how how rude that is and how how messed up that is and how it's you know indicative of centuries of colonization mm-hmm. and indicative of you know um, the experiences Filipinos still have today as as domestic workers overseas. So yeah, and I guess that touchstone, one of the the <clears throat> reverberations in that poem that I that I connected to was you know you talked about the safety smile. You know, right. just smiling and wanting to be liked, which is my tragic flaw. And then Raja Humabon, a Filipino king, did not resist Magellan's missionary agenda. And it was like, wow, like across centuries, sort of like this um, experience and attitude towards colonizers, you know, white folks who say things like that. And um, and I think that was so powerful and nuanced and thinking about how I can, you know, I experience like those sort of connections between my own 
you know, my own history with colonialism and then the way I interact with others today. Um, that right. just felt so immediate to me. Right. And I'm also like the poem also realizes that that's not that it's really not about yeah. who we are as people. Right. It's, right. it's about I mean, Lapu Lapu, for example, resisted. And so I can't I can't like always say like, oh, my behavior today is related to or is um, is like a consequence of this history because because Raja Humabun was was one Filipino and then there were other Filipinos who resisted as well. Right. And how resistances can look different, right? There right. The, and I and that I felt like was sort of the crux of the poem is that it may not always look the way that I might imagine and that mm-hmm. and it, and it's important for me to see that that and I and the example in this poem is the wife's bright cackle from the other room like the firing of artillery from a distant ship and I just and it's like finding those moments of what resistance is and and um, and maybe she wouldn't have called it that right (laughs) right exactly yeah can you talk a little bit about the word heathen and the concept of that yeah so while I was so this book I, I I think of it as sort of like um my annotations of Antonio Pigafetta's Magellan's Voyage, a narrative account of, of Magellan's circumnavigation, of the first circumnavigation, because um, I was reading that book and I read it over and over again, and then I was writing poems um, that were related to, you know, Antonio Pigafetta and, and Magellan and their experience in Cebu or in their experience in the Philippines. Mm-hmm. And um, one thing that I loved to actually, I, I really enjoyed reading. Um, this lit, so there's a poem in the in the in my book called "Some Words of the Aforesaid Heathen Peoples," and in Pigafetta's um, in Pigafetta's book, he has in in all of the places that they they go, he or not all of them, but in some of the places that they that they go, he um, translates words of the people that live there, and he did that in Cebu. And when I saw the list of words, I was really surprised to see how similar um, how similar the words are to current Cebuano words mm-hmm. and I found it kind of like um, it was sort of like a moving experience to kind of see that like time hasn't changed the language so much because I grew up sort of like you know learning that like there's so many Spanish influences that there are so many Spanish words in the Cebuano dialect in the Cebuano language and um so I, I saw that list and I, I, I was like wow I can't believe that all of these words are still the same um and then I wrote the poem some words of the Aphrodite um, and so the title is, I, I, I consider that poem like the heart of the book mm. and the title is from that poem, but part of the way that I wrote this book and I was thinking about it was that, you know, religion is a really big part of like the Spanish colonization of the Philippines. Mm-hmm. And, um, my family is extremely religious and a part of the reason why we traveled so much when we lived in my dad was in the military, we lived in Germany, and we traveled so much because we would go on these pilgrimages. Mm. And it's just really interesting to me to think about how my family's religion is really, you know, a consequence of colonization and how I've sort of resisted or how I've sort of um, rejected Catholicism and how a part of me feels kind of like glad that I have because of because I because I kind of see that as the origin of 
or I see I see the origin of my family's Catholicism, and I associate that to uh, to um, Spanish colonization of the Philippines. And so, so heathen to me, the, the word heathen means you know somebody who who has no religion or somebody who's pagan. And um, I kind of want to think about that word as you know something that I am now, mm. that's something that we all are. So that's sort of how I was sort of. Right. You mentioned Pigafetta's journal, and I'm wondering if you can talk a little bit about how his records influenced poetic form, or just the way that you approach form for these poems. I really, right now, that that, that poem that I mentioned, some words of the aforesaid heathen peoples, the, the way that the, the translations look are the, the same way that it looks in the transcripts, or the translations of hmm. um, of uh, uh, Magellan's voyage of, of Pigafetta's text, mm-hmm. but it wasn't originally like that. I was sort of messing around for a while with how I wanted that to look, and so I, that was something that I, that I changed a lot. But I, I just realized um, right before well, when I was editing it that I think that it, it looked best. Um, it was best for it to look kind of similar to the way that it appears in Pigafetta's text. Mm-hmm. But other than that, I would say that. Um, the other poems in the manuscript that are related to Pigafetta's text aren't necessarily um, impacted by what I what I saw in Pigafetta's text, um, except for the last poem, mm-hmm. a counter argument that goes all the way around. That poem is an abecedarian, yeah, and it's an abecedarian that's so an abecedarian is a poem that um, moves sequentially through the alphabet. Uh, so the first the first line starts with A, and the second line starts with B, and the third line starts with so on and then once it gets to z it moves backwards uh through the through the alphabet and so the poem is, is like an abecedarian that goes all the way around hmm. um and so that was a poem that that was sort of like that was sort of like uh you know of like the form was sort of um matching the content because the content was like a circumnavigation or a retro navigation of the, of the past yeah right? yeah yeah absolutely can you talk a little bit about um, your poem, The Lives of Saints? And I know you mentioned religion and Catholicism earlier. And in this poem, you're navigating, or the speaker is navigating, the relationship between um, her father and technology and what it means to um, not identify with the religion that their family um, practices. And I'm wondering if we could talk a little bit about this poem and the process. Yeah, so my dad will send me emails all the time about, like, some, like there'll be emails about saints or they'll be about religion or, he was doing it more when I wrote this poem, he does it a little bit less now, but my parents, like, they use technology a lot to kind of, like, proselytize, so, like, <laughs> they'll go on Facebook, like, they have one account, it's my mom's account, and they will, um, you know, My parents do that, too. They share an account. Yeah. <laughs> It's kind of unsettling, right? Because sometimes I'll think I'm talking to my mom, and then my my mom will say something about his wife, you know. <laughs> and I'm like, "That's okay. Why don't you guys just like tell me first that this is dad?" You know? Right. But but yeah, like my I think that it's my dad doing this. But he'll he'll post uh, you know the biographies of saints and with like a picture of a saint on Facebook and stuff like that. So this poem is sort of about how he continues to kind of like share his religion. He's a really devout Catholic, and I, I respect him for that. And 
he continues to share that with me, um, you know, through email and sometimes over the phone and sometimes through, like, videos of, like, saints like Emma. Have you heard of Emma, by the way? I haven't. No. Yeah, so, so this, so this poem is sort of, like, is a poem about that and it's also a poem about, um, the ways in which sometimes, like, being a person who's sort of rejected their religion, um, feel sort of empty or mm. it can make you feel sort of empty um and how sometimes there's like a desire for me to kind of have it back in a way mm-hmm. but then I can't but in a way I can't ever really have it back because of the way that I I've learned to live without it so does right. that make sense yeah absolutely can you talk a little bit about what Emma is for people who don't who don't know what that is yeah so Emma is a she's a contemporary um I, she hasn't been, I don't think she's been canonized, but she's somebody who's experienced miracles um, in the Philippines. And I had to watch, my parents um, had a DVD about her and I watched I watched it at their house. And it was, a, she, she would have like miraculous moments when she would like find gems in her forehead and she would pull them out of her forehead. And um, like during prayer, her skin would start to sparkle and then I think that she also experienced stigmata. I can't, I can't verify that. I, I don't remember if that was like me, if that's just me mixing it up, but I'm, I, but she's experienced similar things to that. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I didn't know there was a DVD. <laughs> oh no, I need to go find <laughs> it. <laughs> I'll send it to you. Okay. <laughs> I'm wondering if you could talk just a little bit about, um, having a book out in the world during this time and what, what that means and, um, Again, we're in the middle of March during uh, coronavirus, and I think, like, you're the... Usually I'd be teaching today, and, like, it's strange to not have, like, outside contact. You're, like, the second person I've I've talked to outside of my husband this morning, so... Absolutely. Um, yeah. I, it's weird having a book out right now. I mean, the book isn't public. It, it won't be released until um, next week, next Tuesday. So, like, uh, in five days, the book will be released. And um, I, I had a book tour scheduled, and and, it, and I canceled all of it. Um, and at first, I was really, really upset about it. But then now I'm just like, shut up, stop being upset about it, you're lucky, like, you're able to, because I'm teaching, I'm, I'm in a PhD program, and, and my husband is also in a PhD program, and so we're both able to, to still do our jobs online, and we're still able mm. to get paid, and and um, I feel really lucky about that, and, and we're lucky enough to, like, have enough food, and to be young enough to, like, go out and get food, and not be so worried about our health, Yeah. Um, and so I'm trying to, like, kind of count our blessings, so to speak, but, like, it's weird having the book out because I, I really want to promote it and I want to celebrate mm-hmm. like there's a, and, and it's sort of hard to not be able to do that or to only do it online. Right. And I've seen, I see a lot of people like doing readings online and I feel, I've been trying to think about like if I wanted to do that for my quote unquote launch. And I don't know if I, if I feel like that, if I feel like doing that, I don't know why. I just am not sure about whether or not I feel comfortable. No, that's, that's totally understandable. I mean, it's such a strange time where I think 
where folks are worried about food and, um, but I think, but books are so important and I think it's important to celebrate the good things. And by the way, that weird sound was my cat trying to jump onto the counter. So I had to pick him up and put him down. I know, I locked the cat out of the living room. Though, so I <laughs> yeah. But other than that, I mean, we're just trying to hunker down and, and not do very much. And I'm sure that other people are, are doing the same. It's hard to do. It's hard to, like, be stressed out and not be able to, like, de-stress with other people. Yeah. And it's sort of, I mean, I don't know about you, but, like, my creative life has totally changed. Like, I feel, I have, I'm having a really hard time writing. Like, I'm, I was like, so this week was supposed to be our spring break. Mm. And um, I was like, oh, I'm going to get a lot of writing done during spring break. I'm not going to do anything. I'm just going to write. And it's just, you know, our minds are all filled with the apocalypse. Yeah. You know, it's, it's just, it's just a hard time to be a creative person, I guess. Yeah, absolutely. And I think. I think it's okay to not, and I've been seeing people just on Twitter saying it's okay. We're not meant to be productive right now. Like, I think that's part of the failure of what's happening is that desire and addiction um, to productivity. Um, You know, it is, and it, and it's, and it's weird. This sounds, this might sound weird but it, it's weird to actually take my time <laughs> you know? right. to really be present. And, and um, I think I'm really seeing this time as just a, a moment to reflect and not just as a writer, but as just someone in the world, a person in the world. And like, and for me, I think sometimes writing can be so much about, and recently it's been like a lot about, okay, what, is, what to do with the book and, you know, um, scheduling readings. And at a certain point, about a year and a half ago, that's what all, that's what I was doing most. Right, yeah. And that took up writing time. And so it was sort of this weird position to be in where I was sort of like in like, okay, I got to visit this class and talk about the book. And I'm like, and this book feels such a, and Juan Felipe Herrera talks about like the book is a souvenir of the process and I really love that because it's like that process is done and, but it feels weird to continuously talk about the book when the process has been done like a while ago. It feels nice to kind of have that, to not feel so removed or to feel removed from that feeling of like, I had a bunch of events coming up and it's like, it's kind of, it's actually kind of okay. You know, Um, there's some lost revenue there, but I too am lucky that I still have my job. Um, right. But it'll, yeah, I know. I was sort of feeling like that too after after I kind of grieved the fact that like this wouldn't be a normal semester and I wouldn't have a normal book tour. I started to feel kind of like, well, you know, I can still. I mean, I still have the book and I can still spend this time being creative and writing, and I can actually use this time to write rather than focusing on preparing for events. Um, mm. And so it's kind of like I don't know. It's it's kind of it's kind of a blessing in a way. Yeah. I, don't know. I mean, obviously, it's not a blessing. Um, the coronavirus crisis is, of course, not a blessing. Mm-hmm. A lot of people are suffering, and a lot of people um, have lost their jobs, right? Um, mm-hmm. But it's kind of it's kind of a blessing to have my events canceled. I guess is what I'm saying. Yeah. And it's so interesting thinking about like 
because we were just talking about religion and faith earlier too, right? It's like, how does that, you know, as a writer, that's something that I'm interested in too. And it's like, how does that change and shift and like conversations with family? Like, how does that change and shift? And, um, and it's, it's, it's dynamic in that way. And, and I'm finding myself, um, being more open <laughs> about this conversations. Um, yeah, I guess with like faith and what that looks like for my family. Um, Is your family really religious too? My my dad's um, very Catholic. He goes to mass almost every day. And my my mom is religious, but not as hardcore as my dad. But, so does it feel like it's sort of changing for you? Um, like, do you feel sort of like a change in yourself when it comes to faith when now that this this is happening? You know, I think I don't know if I'm. Um, you know, it's interesting because I think you know most of the Catholic churches are closed, right? Right. Yeah. So I'm 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 rethinking of this I of what does it mean to have a sacred place at home? Like, what does that look like? Um, to have a, I live in an apartment in a duplex. So like, what does it mean to amplify or create that sacred space in a small apartment? (laughs) So those are some of the questions that I've been thinking about. Um, and with my family, it's interesting because my, my, mom was still riding the BART up until this past Monday, the train to San Francisco and working and was like, this is no big deal. And my sister and I have been like fighting with her. Like you need to go. Oh my God. Yeah. Yeah. And I don't know if faith has to do with that, you know, just sort of this blind faith that everything's going to be okay. And, um, I'm not, but I do have a spiritual practice and I meditate and, but I, I find myself looking for more spaces of like connection, um, beyond and like, and seeing that, you know, you talked about a little bit about your family and church and, um, I think I'm at a point where I see how much that's helped them. Um, and so it's like, okay. I can, I can understand. And I think church has been a way for them to make sense of what doesn't. Right. Yeah. I was just going to ask if you were religious or spiritual or if that has, if that's shaped you at all. I don't know. It's just really, it's really interesting to hear you talk about this in terms of the coronavirus because I have been having trouble sleeping Mm. and I usually don't. And I, and so what I've been doing is praying. Hmm. Um, as a way to kind of like relax and to think that to kind of like ease my, my stress about all of this. Yeah. Um, and so I, I still, the tools are still there. I, I don't, I'm not religious. I don't go to church. My parents, so growing up, my parents took us, we, we went to church every day that we could. So if, um, if it was summer vacation, my brother and I would walk to church every day. Mm-hmm. Um, and we would pray the rosary every night. And so, um, so I'm not really, 
religious, I don't pray the rosary, but I still will, like, use those tools to kind of help me, mm-hmm. you know, and in a way, like, sometimes when I'm praying, I think about, like, why am I praying, why am I doing this, but it's just sort of, like, it's, like, ingrained, it's in my bones, you Right. Know? Absolutely. Yeah, I, it's funny, because I, I, my family's very Catholic, and I went through, um, and we walked to church, too, it was pretty close, yeah. and, um, we did confirmation and the first, my sister and I, we took confirmation classes, but the first day of the class, the confirmation teacher showed us slides of, um, of like fetus, aborted fetuses. And yeah. And I was like, I am (laughs) pro-choice. I will not stand. I'm like 14. I will not stand for this. And so I just did not get confirmed. I dropped out and my mother was heartbroken. Oh my gosh. Good for you. <laughs> I was, I was a bit of a firecracker in high school. And, um, so I never, I'm not technically Catholic. <laughs> so. so if you, so when you're with your parents and it's like a Sunday, do you go to church with them? S- sometimes. Okay. Yeah. I think they've accepted that like, okay, she does her own thing and, um, they don't even invite me anymore, which is, which is actually a big move on their part. Yeah. My, um, yeah, my brother and I will go to church with them when we're, when we're with them. Um, I think that for my family, and I'm not sure if my dad has come to terms with this or not, we just don't really talk about it anymore. Mm. But I think that for him, it's a huge tragedy that we won't be in heaven with him. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I actually had a poem in All Heathens that was called Heathen, and it was about that, about how, the fact that my dad sort of grieves the fact that we won't spend the afterlife with him. But then it was, then I, I wasn't really feeling that good about it, and then the editor was just like, what, what about this poem? Are you sure you want to keep this in the book? And then I, I just, I was like, no, let's take it out. Yeah. <laughs> I was kind of relieved that it was taken out, but, um, but yeah, like I, it's something that I, I find kind of heartbreaking. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah, that is that is heartbreaking. And I think um I don't know, when it comes to those kinds of conversations, I I try to like have I try to bring a um a sense of like expansiveness to it. Like my cuz my mom will like randomly say, "Why aren't you going to church?" I'm like, "Okay." <laughs> you know, she'll bring it up and um right. You know, and 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 it's helpful for me to just say that works for you, and that's great, <laughs> you know. Right. Yeah. And um, and it's gonna be okay. We're here together, and it's good to have like a positive response to it rather than being like, no, yeah, stop, stop pressuring me. Yeah. Yeah. I think like um, I've had to figure out like when my mom does that, it's because she's worried about me. And it's, and she won't say, I'm worried about you. She'll say, why aren't you going to church? And so it's sort of like that shorthand, um, you know, communication, immigrant and Filipino communication with their, you know, second generation kids. Yeah, exactly. It's, it's just them saying that they love you, right? Yeah. Yeah. You sort of veered off of the topic of your book. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. It's kind of. Yeah. Talking about 
sort of how we deal with that now or how we kind of like how what our spiritual lives are now because um, I wouldn't say like I mean this book is called All Heathens um, and a heathen is somebody who you know um, doesn't have like organized religion right mm-hmm. um, but um, I wouldn't consider myself an atheist um, mm. and I I just I just like want to I just I, my, my, my feelings towards religion are just ambivalent and that's just that's just how it is and that's mm-hmm. how it'll always be right and I think about the term heathen and how it's um, <laughs> it's somehow unifying to all other colonized peoples who were called that right like you know there's like you know that term heathen is is um not specific to filipinos and i think there's some kind of feeling of um it's like heathen by like to whom you know who's who who created that term and and um and it's like okay uh we're not the only heathens but um you know, native folks in the United States were, you know, were considered or called heathens as well. Right. Um, yeah. So it makes me think yeah. about like, yeah, that, that twist of language um, and how that's used in your book to kind of, kind of upend that idea. Right. In a way I wanted to kind of reclaim the idea of heathen as something that is like, as someone who isn't colonized. Right. Mm-hmm. Right. And to kind of like think about myself as somebody who is no longer colonized, even though in a lot of ways I, you know, we still are. Right. I would like to hear just like what you're doing to take care of yourself these days and what that looks like for you on top of the online teaching and taking care of your, your home and your family. As a writer, it's been sort of an interesting process to have a book out. Um, and so on top of the coronavirus and, and that affecting um, my creativity. Um, and yeah, I, I, uh, my, I, I feel like I've been sort of like struggling to, to write new poems after publishing the book. Mm. Um, and it's interesting, I was sort of thinking like, when I, okay, so when I wrote this, when I wrote this book, um, I wrote it over the course of you know, four years, and I wasn't really even seeing it as a manuscript for most of that time. Um, and then I took a manuscript workshop, and then I started to see sort of the threads in my own writing. Mm-hmm. And then I started to see sort of like where it needed to go. And then I, I immediately wrote a lot of poems that ended up in the book that were responding to that need, right? Mm-hmm. And and I think that after I finished the manuscript, I thought that's the way that I need to write all the time. Like I need to have a project. I need to know exactly what it'll look like and what the project needs and then write poems towards that need. And so I started to like write different projects. I had this one book that was um, focused on, it was was like a self-help book that was just like a bunch of how-to poems. That's great. Um, And it was called, I even had a title for it. It was called Help, Self. And I just, uh, for some reason, those poems really weren't working. Mm-hmm. And then I started writing another project that was, I know that you write about Imelda Marcos, or you have poems mm-hmm. about Imelda Marcos. I, I started writing poems that were about Imelda Marcos, and then that um, just 
having the idea for the project and thinking that I could write around that just was not working for me. Hmm. Now I'm just trying to write new poems and just write them for the poems themselves just because I want the poems themselves to exist and not really think about a manuscript. And then hopefully I'll have a bunch of poems and then I can kind of sort through them and see which one might work for a, a new collection. And then maybe after that I can kind of see where it needs to go. But um, it's just interesting to think about process and mm-hmm. how I realized that the process that I thought would work did not work. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, yeah. Did you have Did you have a similar experience after publishing your book? Like, were you struggling to write new work? Yeah, absolutely. I think it's, you know, I, I got caught up in the readings and the events and stuff for a while. Yeah. And then I was like, I write about the Aswang, which is... Um, you know, a Filipino mythic creature and it kept showing back up. I'm like, no, I'm done. <laughs> I'm done with you. And yeah. And I, I wonder if that's just something that'll come up and that's okay. Um, and I was like, stop it. <laughs> yeah. And, and um, yeah. And I, I, but I really like what you said about scaling back to the poem instead of thinking about the manuscript, because I think I, I'm very project minded and it's been helpful to, um, focus on the poem, the poem itself and like finding, letting the poem speak and finding what it, what, where the connective tissue is after I've written. Cause I, I think there's something I feel like when I, when I wrote and then published the book, there's that feeling of, oh, I know how to do this now. <laughs> Even though it was hard, it was really, it was really yeah. challenging, but I, I don't think that's, that's good. <laughs> you know? like, I don't think it serves the creative process at all. Like, because it, it felt like, well, I don't want to keep doing what I always do or what I did in the past. And how can I subvert my own tendencies as a writer um, and like challenge myself? Um, and so, know, and maybe in a way you don't need to subvert your own tendencies. Maybe you shouldn't try to start the Aswang. Like maybe there's more to the Aswang that just needs to be explored. Right. So. Yeah. Yeah. I. Yeah. And it's. It's interesting because then it feels like, oh, that book's not done. <laughs> like that book isn't finished, and there is more to say. And I. I think it's it's definitely a process of um, like uncovering things. And, and the thing that I say, um, I say that the Aswang's promiscuous because um, there's so much um, about that creature that to unpack, you know, um, right. in terms of coloni- the history of colonialism, um, the ways in which um, she sucks out fetuses from pregnant women, like, there's just so much there. And I think it's been interesting to see, like, since I wrote those poems, how many other, and I'm certainly not the first at all, um, but just how many other folks are taking that, um, that story and that trope in different ways. And I think that's so like, it's so fascinating to see um, how complex and nuanced um, the Aswang is and, um, and in ways that I wouldn't have written about her. Um, and so it's just making me rethink that sort of like feeding the fodder of like, okay, like this, you know, um, this 
playwright is writing about the Aswang in terms of like, you know, sibling relationships and, um, and that's fascinating. And so it just, it's like, it's still, um, I'm still processing a lot of that work and I don't know what that's going to look like in my own poetry. Um, and I don't know, have you had that experience where, where like you're, you're reading and then it sort of lends itself to more of, or, you know, it, it adds to the layers of conversations that you're having in your first book? Yeah, I was actually, I finished this manuscript, or I was working on this manuscript, and then um, I went to AWP, and I saw that um, there's this book called uh, Pig of Feta is My Wife by Joe Hall. Oh, I read that book. I interviewed him for the podcast. Yeah. You interviewed him for the podcast? Yeah, I did. Oh, okay. I should listen to that interview. That's so interesting. That was a couple years ago, I think. When he wrote right, that it book. was a couple of years ago. And it was good. Yeah. I, I was, I, it, was, it was fun to read it and, and kind of realize how different it, that book is from mine. Mm-hmm. And how, you know, like the focus of my book is really the Philippines and, and, and family and diaspora and immigration and also like colonization. But like, um, but yeah, his, his book is totally different. So it was just kind of fun to kind of like see the different ways we could talk about this history, right? Right. Have you read um, How to Hide an Empire by Daniel Immerwar? No, I haven't. It's fascinating. And he's a historian. um, And he writes about the history of uh, um, U.S. um, territories, including the Philippines. And he writes it alongside... Well, he, he really centers that history and... Um, and makes connections between the Philippines and Puerto Rico and Guam and sort of like these, um, the colonial relationships. Um, it's fascinating. It's so good. And I've been reading that book pretty slowly, but it's been helping me think about some of the historical documents that I've been reading about the Aswang and the ways in which they've been formatted and written. Because a lot of the texts about the Aswang are very anthropological. Like it's a lot of like anthropology departments um, publishing those texts. Yeah. And you're, and for me, I'm like, this is such a colonial project of um, organizing the Aswang according to you or comparing to European um, mythic creatures. But, but reading that history is, is creating another, it's just making me think about um, how, close those connections are um because sometimes that history feels so far away but it isn't it it is so just I feel like that's um the beauty of your book is like it's like that it's real and it's present and it's lived it's a lived experience um yeah are you um and you mean like the history of colonialism just generally how like that feels so far away because there are no voices, like you mentioned earlier, no voices of Filipinos for the most part. And so it feels, you know, obviously it's one-sided, but it feels very distant in the sense of, um, you know, these people aren't in it at all. <laughs> you know, they're not yeah. part of this conversation. Right, exactly. Yeah, I know, and that's making me sort of think about how it's so interesting to see Cebuano words mm. in that list I think partly because like that's like a way in which I can see sort of like 
my family right. in that history, you know? Right. So, um, yeah. I also just read um, Insurrecto by Gina Apostol. Have you read that? I haven't. I have it, but I need to read it. I have not read it. Yeah, it's a really good. It's really good and really interesting. Um, but then it, that's also another book where there's... It's also, like, not in chronological... It's not... The, the time um, element in the book is so interesting because it's, like, really not in... The order is so, like, shuffled. Hmm. And so um, it really it really shows sort of the ways in which that history continues to impact the present. Um, right. The history of, like, the Balinese massacre. Yeah. I need to read that. That's on my list. Um, and I really loved it. Have you read Former Possessions of the Spanish Empire by Michelle Pinalosa? No, I haven't, but that's, that's on my list, too. Yeah, it's excellent. And it's, um, it's, it's a really great collection plays off of those ideas of um, the reverberations between colonial history and present life. Um, but she specifically talks about the politics of naming and what it means to like name oneself. So I, I guess we should wrap up, especially since my cat has been more active right now and he's going to dominate um, the sound on this episode. And I don't want that to happen. But um, I'm wondering if you could just share um, any other recommendations that you have or or um, writing advice that you have for um, folks who are creative during this time. I have started to journal this year, and I think that it's been really helpful to me because as, you know, as a PhD student, I, I consume so much media, hmm. and I am always talking to people about poetry and always getting feedback on poetry, and sometimes in those situations, it can be kind of hard to, to, to know what my priorities are and what my voice is and what I want to write about and what and how I want to write it. Mm-hmm. And I think journaling is just, like, a really great way to connect to yourself and to, like, be quiet and have a conversation with yourself. And that's really been helping me a lot over the past few months. And I think that it's going to help me a lot now that um, I'm in isolation and, and all of this is happening around the world. And there's so much of the news in, in our heads. I feel like it's, it's, really, it's really important to, to kind of, like, bring it back to yourself it's it's really calming too mm-hmm. so um i really recommend journaling um also i always like a i mean i don't know i feel like i've it, this hasn't really worked for me as much lately but i'm a big proponent of uh using constraints in in writing poems specifically hmm. just because i think it's a way like um like taking like saying that you you aren't going to use the, the letter i in your poem or or um writing a sonnet or Sistina or Villanelle, I think that it's mm-hmm. kind of a good way to kind of make new choices in your writing. And so I, I always recommend that to, to people who are kind of stuck. Um, it hasn't been working for me lately, though, for some reason. And so I've been kind of trying new things. Yeah. And do you have any um, recommendations? And they could be just things that you are reading or watching for pleasure, um, you know, things that you perhaps... Um, besides preparing for online classes, things that you're turning to for comfort? Yeah. Um, I just read The Galleons by Rick Barrett. That's mm. another book that <laughs> explores history and, and its impact on, on people today. 
was really great. Um, I am currently reading Natalie Center's Sapiko's um, Lima Limon, which has been really just like a engrossing read. I don't know why I like read it right before I go to bed, and each of the poems just kind of like it's very it's just very stimulating to me. Um, hmm. There's just something about those poems that's really exciting to me. Um, in terms of TV. <laughs> uh, my husband and I just watched The Outsider uh, on HBO. It's a it's a TV show based on a Stephen King novel. Have you watched that yet? I haven't. I just finished um, what's it called? The Philip Pullman TV show Golden Compass. Uh, His Dark Materials. Yeah. Oh, okay, is that good? It's it's good. It's way better than the movie. Um, oh, okay. Um. Yeah, the the outside. I don't know if I would recommend. I we just finished it, and I liked like the first six episodes, but then it started to kind of like lose steam, I guess, at the end. So maybe watch the first six episodes. I recommend the first six. Episodes. <laughs> <laughs> um, and in terms of novels, I I just finished uh, Sally Rooney's Conversations with Friends, and for mm. some reason, um, have you ever read Have you read Sally Rooney at all? I haven't, but I, that's another, um, I know her books are on my, are on my to be read list, so. Yeah, for some reason, I, I don't know what it is about her books, so Normal People, oh no, I just read, read Normal People, not Conversations with Friends, um, I read both of those books, and they were just like page turners for me, and I mm-hmm. found them really exciting to read, and, and fun, and, and kind of, like, not, not light, like, the, the writing is really, um, intellectual and sophisticated, but also, like, kind of not super like um dark you know mm-hmm. it's not really like a, the books are not very dark and so I kind of enjoy I really enjoyed reading those books and I recommend them yeah. that's great and Marianne do you think you can um leave us with um a few poems yeah sure um let's see I can read any recommendations <laughs> Or, I mean, any recommendations, any uh, requests? Um, we talked about The Lives of Saints, so that might be cool to hear. Um, okay. And then I just ate um, a cheesy mamon <laughs> before I talked to you, which I got at Seafood City. So, I mean, that might be fun to read, too. Okay, great. All right, I'll do Seafood City first, and then I'll read Lives of Saints. Okay. and for dessert some pandesal and I aspire to be low carb but pandesal reminds me of my mother's hands and I wish I were holding them now in Michigan singing love will keep us together I'll be her captain she might kneel but alas the desert and the dessert claim me soon I'll climb into my Honda CRV I'll sing along to the golden oldies and coast down flamingo with the AC blasting maybe later I'll go to a Motown and impersonation show where the same person will play both Tina and Diana. There are so many Filipinos in Seafood City with Honda CRVs like the one I drive. The other day in the parking lot, I unlocked someone else's car. I nearly drove away until I discovered the boxes of spam in the back seat and the general lack of Honda cell crumbs on the floor. It was an easy mix-up. A rosary also dangled from my car's rearview mirror, white beads, gold chains. My dad hung it there just before he left me, alone in a city with nearby brothels and machine gun and burger joints, 
penny slots in grocery stores, my roulette addiction at its peak. In July, when the desert sun is raging and unkind, the rosary will melt off and I won't even notice. The truth is I don't deserve my desert dessert, this sweet hot sun, this meat bun, this fun to sell on the tongue. How does one live forever in paradise? What does it mean to feel deserted, to feel desperate for something sacred, for some substance to soothe the soul? The Motown cover band is garbage, but I'll dance anyway. It will remind me of the real thing, and by real thing, I mean my mother on the microphone with no makeup, flower beneath her nails, the dough needed, all of us needing to hear her sing, my girl, or please Mr. Postman dad at the adoration chapel kneeling before the fundusel of christ praying for our souls hmm. is this a vegas poem it is a vegas poem i was like i think i know some of these places <laughs> <laughs> like yeah, machine so gun and burger cool. joint <laughs> yeah exactly there's like a, i remember that billboard i always wanted to go there. yeah totally um, the, it's kind of funny too, because that poem, I, I say, I say that by the real thing, I mean my mother on the microphone, because mm. when I grew up, I swear I heard her sing songs on karaoke before I ever heard the originals do a lot of pop songs. Uh. So like, I will like, kind of, I kind of like learned the, 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 t- the tune kind of differently. And then I would hear the original and I was like, oh, that sounds really different. Yeah. <laughs> Okay, so this one is Lives of Saints. My father emails me a quote from St. Therese of Lisieux, but I learned that Therese would not have liked the largeness of the email. It is too big for the little flower, the saint of little things. I learned from Wikipedia that Therese would wish to remain small or little enough to be lifted into heaven, and that she had dreamed of the desert to which God would someday lead. The internet is an afterlife, and if it is a desert, it is the American Mojave, where one might find desolate plains of red dirt, and also pockets of neon and billboards and clubs, where a toe-headed DJ presses his headphone against his ear, making a room bubble like a shoal of green. I'm not sorry about this desert to which God somehow led sweet little Teresa of the Sioux. Perhaps the internet is not the desert she would have chosen, but I'm happy for her nonetheless. She shares her space with videos of otters holding hands, with Instagram models who, like saints, are idols, with bios and backstories, their pictures <laughs> like the images on holy cards. These thoughts, however, are not what my father hoped I'd take away from my, his email, which said, Miss no opportunity to make some small sacrifice. My father, the Catholic, worries about my soul, and this worry appears to me as a vision in the form of an email in my inbox. A quote from St. Therese, the little saint of littleness. Perhaps he should be worried. I pray to no saint, and my little sacrifice for the day is to go to work and to refrain from picking at the dry patch of skin on the back of my scalp, and to smile and smile and smile until 5 p.m. when my hot car will melt away that charitable cheese from my face, when I'll wish for some miracle to swoop me up and out and far from Florida, into a pile of fresh sky-graded snow. Hmm. I'm not sad, no. My my emotional state is hush-colored. That yellow-green shush of cicadas makes me nothing again when all I want is to be something. A few years ago, my parents set me down in front of a DVD about a flashy Filipino 
missionary named Emma, who claimed to see apparitions of the Virgin Mary, and who picked gemstones from her forehead, and whose body sweated golden glitter when she saw her visions. And I realized then the high demand for sainthood, how badly everyone around her needed that sparkling presence, how much they wanted the thorns that gathered on her forehead, like sunburn or spectators around an accident. We all think here is the evidence to confirm that we are not, in fact, nothing, that we are the chosen animals. There is no irony to the fact that the abbreviation for saint is the same as the one for street. Saints are the ground on which we walk, and without them we are merely falling or floating or treading, or we are simply here, standing with ourselves in our rooms, in our little world. I check my phone for notifications, but everything is quiet as an empty bathtub. I check the sky for a sky and find no sign, feel only the skyness one feels during twilight. God knows I'm a cavern that refuses to be filled. Hmm. Marianne, thank you so much for being on the show today. Thank you for having me. It's been really wonderful talking to you. Yeah, it was great to talk to you during this really bizarre time, and it just feels good to hear poetry and and to hear you talk about your process. So I really appreciate you taking the time. Absolutely.